I was about to go dance right over there. For those who missed that bumper last week, it is so good. It's like being in the club. Not that I know anything about that, but I'm just saying, I've seen television shows where people are in the club and the music hits and you just kind of lose control and things start shaking. And yeah. So anyways, hey, I'm Chris Causey, and I'm the lead pastor, and I am so glad that you're here today. Um, we're going to be continuing a series that we started last week with the Epic Bumper uh, called Soul Detox. And the idea of this series is we want to kind of lean into the things that can um, begin to poison our soul. I think we've journeyed over the last couple years through some things that if we haven't been intentional, have done more damage to us than we've realized. And today I want to look at one of those particular toxins that um, doesn't come in fast. It kind of slowly builds. Sometimes this toxin can take, um, not days, but decades to build. And I've been around enough human beings as a pastor to know that this one toxin is probably the most dangerous of them all. Um, And to, to kick off there, I want to share something that maybe you don't know about strategy in um, warfare. So in the Iraq war, there was a tendency for tanks to explode that the American government started to notice. They realized this was a significant weakness for them, and so they set about redesigning how they designed tanks. So as a nation, the tanks that we have are different because of the devastation that our tanks experienced in the Iraqi war. The the design flaw is called the -the jack-in-the-box. And it's the same design flaw that currently, if you follow the Russian-Ukrainian kind of conflict, it's the same challenge that Russia is currently having. Russia's lost probably an estimated of about 540 tanks. Now, these things aren't cheap. This is, that's a devastating loss for any country, no matter how big you are. But what makes it specifically, particularly interesting is that the reason they've lost most of these tanks is because the -the jack-in-the-box problem. The jack-in-the-box problem is, this is what it looks like when you experience the -the jack-in-the-box, something you do not want to experience. So um, a little bit of tank dynamics. This is a turret. This is the the thing that you think about when you think about a tank, the piece that shoots kind of the artillery shells, and it moves and it swings. This is the part that people are afraid of because it has devastating effects. But the Russian um, army's tanks, what they do is there's, about three individuals that sit inside the tank, and they sit in there with 40 other artillery shells. There's no compartmentalization. There's no separate storage. And so when the Ukrainian missiles hit the tanks, it sets off a cascade that ultimately ends up with 40 shells exploding inside of that little tiny metal box. And because the weakest part of the design is this ring here, all the energy goes up. It kills the soldiers in the process, but it oftentimes blows off the top of the tank. And it's called the -the jack-in-the-box. And and as I was reading and preparing for this message, this um, design flaw that's present in the Russian tanks today, I think is a really good illustration for how this one particular toxin that we're going to look at today works. That it does, slowly builds up. And we let things store and we just, we don't compartmentalize. We just keep sticking it because we believe somehow it's going to go away. And then one day something happens and it blows it all up. And to kind of lean into not only trying to convince you that this is a toxin that you need to become 
aware of, but I also want to show you out of the story how you can start to navigate and deal with it because um, it's a bigger thing. You take decades to build up something. You don't get rid of it in days, right? And so to get there, I want to take you to a story that's um, actually it's an entire book that I want to sum up today. It took place about 3,000 years ago. And in some ways, it's very, very 3,000 years ago. But as we're reminded by the news, humans haven't really changed that much. We still have conflict. We still war against each other. We still um, judge and jump to conclusions and are quick to believe lies. There's a lot of tendencies that are still present. And so while this is 3,000 years ago, in some ways, it's very much 2022, too. The story um, that I want to specifically focus on the person today um, comes from what's called the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is the kind of the central figure of the book. But I don't want to talk about Ruth today, although she is an incredible woman, as we'll see in a second. I actually want to talk about somebody else in the book who has a lot to teach us. And so um, around 3,000 years ago, uh, you have a famine in um, the Middle Eastern world, what's modern-day Jordan, modern-day Israel. Uh, modern-day Jordan is, was in that time called Moab. And so uh, Naomi, her two sons, and her husband leave Israel, and they go to Moab. And once they arrive in Moab, they begin to settle down, and Naomi loses her husband which is pretty devastating. There is no social welfare system. There is no social security system present back then. But she has two sons, so she's okay. They both get married to Moabite women and begin to kind of establish life. And then roughly 10 years in, her sons die too. And so here's this woman who's lost everything. She lost the man that she loves. She lost her two sons. But there wasn't just the relational devastation. It was also financial, economic. This is a different day and age where uh, men and women were not treated equally. There, there was a, a very clear dividing line. That line is still present in a lot of circles today, but not nearly to the degree that it was back then because to, to have a son was security. To have a daughter was not. Because the son could work, the son could provide. And so for this woman who had no access to any social uh, welfare system at all, uh, was stuck in a foreign country with no relatives. And it's in this backdrop that we step in and that we meet the, the person who is the character, the central focus, Ruth. And so Ruth replies to Naomi, who's tried to send them Home while she goes back to Israel because uh, Naomi has heard that God is blessing people in Israel, that the famine is starting to end there. And in Moab, they're feeling the pressure still. So she's like, I'm going to go home to my relatives um, and just kind of live off of them because essentially she was unemployed, unemployable in that context. And so she tells her daughters-in-law, the, who are now the you know, widows, that, hey, I can't help you. I'm never going to have another son to, that you're going to be able to marry because that was traditionally what you would do if you lost. You would pass on the next son 
to the daughter-in-law. Some of you shuddered the idea of being stuck with your brother-in-law. That would, right? I mean, I'm telling you, it was a little jacked up back then. Um, and so she was like, look, I have no, no sons. I can't help you. So go home. And Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Now, one is probably one of the most poetic statements in all of Scripture. And just a declaration of love and commitment from this daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. Now, my in-laws watch the service. And so clearly, if I ever lost my wife, I would never want to lose my in-laws. I love them. But for some of you whose in-laws do not watch the service, how would you respond if you lost? Would you see yourself leaning in and committing to them? Because this line here, this really significant line in the ancient culture, she says, um, where you die, I will die. That is a declaration that I am officially your daughter. I am choosing you to be my mother. This is Ruth saying to Naomi, I am adopting your family. It's reverse adoption. The kid is picking the parent. Now, I know I would do that, clearly, but you probably wouldn't. Maybe you would. Really fortunate. But this is an extraordinary act. She's going to leave the land she grew up in leave the people that she knows. And she says, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. And your God will become my God. She's converting to Judaism in this moment. Moabites did not believe in the God of what we would call the Old Testament. They had a whole pantheon of gods that they believed in. And so Ruth is literally converting in this moment to Judaism and believing that your God is the God and is my God. And so, um, she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. So this is like contractual level. When I say there's like adoption, this is why I'm saying it. Because she's elevating it to the level of saying, may God deal with me. It's the closest thing that you could have gotten in the ancient world to an unbreakable contract. If even death separates you and me. She's saying, look, when you die, I will be buried in the same land you're buried because I am your daughter. It's powerful. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, which is now in Israel. So they've arrived, and Bethlehem was a small village. Um, it was a small village when Jesus was born there. Um, it was a really small village when they walk in. A lot of people who are Related to one another, they know one another, they've grown up with one another, um, and so everyone knows everyone. And it says, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, because everyone knows. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Why? Because it's been at least a decade since they've seen her. Uh, one of the things I think is so fascinating is when you look at pictures of presidents before they step into the kind of the Oval Office and they look so young and they look younger 
And, and then you look at them four or eight years later, and they've severely aged. You can see it. Like, when we go through stress, stress ages the human body. Like, before I had kids, I had hair. I looked good. I didn't have gray. Right? And some of you can relate to that. Like, I've, I've earned these gray hairs through sleepless nights and struggles and frustrations. And so this is why they're saying, can this be Naomi? Because they're like, it looks like her, but it doesn't. And they're politely saying, wow, life has been hard. You know, if you go back to your high school reunion after 20 years, you're like, some people you see and you're like, ooh, I see your name tag. But life, life's been hard, hasn't it? This is, this is kind of a, Naomi gets it, right? And what does she say? She says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi's uh, name meant uh, my pleasure. Like pleasure and delight, my delight. She would have, personality-wise, her name would have implied that she was this upbeat, optimistic, adventurous woman. Right? She left her nation and moved to a different country with her husband and raised her sons there, and they got married. She's like, don't call me that. She told them. She said, call me Mara. And Mara in the Hebrew means bitter. She's like, I'm not Naomi anymore. My life is not good. There isn't a delight. There isn't happiness. There isn't joy. There's just bitterness. There's anger. There's frustration. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And then, notice what she does. I went away full from this town. But the Lord has brought me back empty. You know, I want you to hear her passion. These aren't just sentences on a page. This is a woman who has spent a decade in her life having her world ripped from her hands. She's lost everyone that she's loved. She has no future and no hope. She left that town filled with fullness and excitement and adventure and hope of, oh, we're loading up in the car and we're going to Moab. And now she's walking to Bethlehem and she's bitter because she doesn't have any of the people with her that she left with. They've all been buried in another country. She says, why you call me Naomi? Stop calling me that. That person is dead. Their life is dead and it's over. She says, the Lord has afflicted me. I mean, I don't know if you're noticing this pattern. She is angry. She is frustrated. He has done this to me. I had a moving van when I left here. We're filled with laughing children and a husband that loved me. And today I come back and I have nothing. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. As if to make it clear to everyone in the village, I'm so mad. And my life is so not fair. And it's been ruined. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And this is how we kind of wrap up this front part of the story. 
you can feel the bitterness, right? You feel the heaviness, the hatred, the anger. And that may feel like a woman from 3,000 years ago, but I think from some of you, some of you can resonate. I think all of you can resonate. The last two and a half years of our life, that got taken from us. Some of your kids' graduation got taken from you. The hopes and the dreams that you had, I don't know about you, but in 2019 and going into 2020, I had a whole list of things I was excited about in 2020. And then the world just broke. And you would watch the news and you would think, oh, we're going to flatten the curve. But I don't know about you, but it seemed like the curve kept flattening us. And there was confusion, there was chaos, and people are evaporating and watching social media and like, well, people in Florida aren't, don't have a pandemic, I'm going there. I mean, like we're, we're watching social media streams and it's easy to feel, well, that's not fair. I didn't pick this life. I didn't, I didn't choose to lose that job. And it's just the frustration and the anger builds up. And it accumulates. I feel like the last two and a half years has given us a lot of accumulation, a lot of uncertainty. And now, you know, if you want to buy something, it costs a lot more. And so if you're already frustrated about what things cost, now you have plenty of reason to be frustrated. If you used to get irritated with the tank of gas, now try to book airline tickets somewhere. You know, and at, at the bottom now, airline companies, I don't know if you know this, but they've added a new thing where you can actually give them one of your children to get your flights, right? I mean, it's this really convenient um, option. But, I mean, that's essentially what you have to do nowadays. And there's just all these little things that just kind of build up. And on top of that, there's those other people who think those other things that are just absolutely, utterly ridiculous. How can any sane human being believe that? Or vote for them. And the world got separated and divided. And it just kept driving us apart. And I think the reason Naomi is so helpful for us is that Naomi, in, in her rant, she actually gives us a glimpse of like the pathology of bitterness. It doesn't take days. It takes decades. We accumulate the little tiny things that have been done and said to us, the grievances that we hold on and we nurture. Now, we would never in a moment in the course of the process say we're bitter. But when we're driving down the road and our mind begins to wonder, we think about what they said. We think about what they did. We remember what they didn't do or how they promised this and never delivered on it. Our mind just starts to bubble up those things. And this is, what near, this is where she is. What, what's interesting is that the New Testament writers would come along later, about a thousand years later, and they would begin to write, kind of fleshing out what is the fullness of Christianity really look like to live the Jesus way. And, and one of the writers talked about bitterness and described it really interestingly. That he described it as a root Don't let a root of bitterness grow in your life, which is actually really insightful to the pathology. A lot of times we think about bitterness as a fruit, but it's not. It's a root. 
If you've ever seen, like, the roots of trees, they just scatter. And they just run, and they roll, and they sidewalks get cracked. I mean, it is truly a marvel what roots slowly growing underground can do to things above it. And this is what bitterness does. It creeps and it seeps into other areas of our life. It may have started with that job. It may have started with that person. But it does not end there. That's just the root. And if we nurture it, we water it, we let it grow in our relationships with our loved ones, it keeps spreading. And I think the New Testament writers had profound insight that bitterness robs us of our future. That the root is growing, but the fruit is what it takes from us. The fruit robs all the potential because why? Bitterness, like roots, locks you into your past. You can't move on. Can't move forward. Because you're rooted down deep, nurturing the animosity, the frustration, that wasn't fair, it's not fair, why do other people get to grow up like that, why do other people have that household, why do other people have someone who loves them, why do other people still have their spouse, why do other people still have their parent, why do other people get that job so easily, we just have all these reasons and we nurture and we water and we foster and the bitterness just keeps growing deeper and deeper and deeper and we get stuck, don't call me Naomi, Call me Mara. It literally changed who she was. She was defined no more by what she'd been. All she could see was where she'd been and what she'd lost. One of the fascinating things in social media is that you get to come across strange stories. And one of them was a report from Poland about a woman who called animal control. She dialed him up, and she was a little alarmed because there was a strange creature in a tree outside of her apartment. And she really wanted to get someone there to deal with it because the creature had been lurking, just sitting still. So she calls. She's like, you need to come over here and take care of this thing. It's freaking me out. And so they arrive, and here's a picture. And when they get into the tree, they realize this isn't some strange, exotic lizard that's poisonous that's going to spit some kind of venom on her. It's a croissant that somehow had fallen off from the higher apartment and gotten wedged in a tree. And it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it's so silly. But this woman had become convinced that something was in that tree, and reality got distorted. And I think one of the things that bitterness does that makes it so effective at robbing our future is it distorts our present. If you notice Naomi's rant, what did you hear? You hear all about what God took from her. But the story isn't just about what's been taken. She doesn't even notice that she has this incredible woman who's chosen to be her daughter. She doesn't even see it anymore. She can't even see it anymore. And that if we're going to become conscious and detox our soul from bitterness, we have to become cognizant of how bitterness distorts and shapes and begins to rob us of our present because it keeps us trapped and rooted in our past. 
and we're consumed by what we've lost. Just like Naomi, who can't even see that Ruth is with her. But, fortunately for us, the book of Ruth doesn't end on chapter 1. It goes on. And in chapter 4, which is the next section I just want to look at before we wrap up today, something starts to slowly fold out that doesn't just give us the pathology of bitterness and how it's formed of anger stacked on top of anger and unresolved and frustration and guilt kind of slowly growing over decades. We also see in the book of Ruth the process to get better. So when she arrives, Naomi knows, because it was one of the most important kind of social obligations that a mother would have had for a daughter, was to get her daughter married. So she arrives in the village, and there is um, a social welfare system that existed within the Jewish um, theology that was actually genius. When you harvested a field, um, in order to provide for the widows and the orphans, you were only to pass over it once. So if you missed something, you left it. And you didn't do the edges of the field. And the thought is, is that someone who was struggling, who didn't have food, could walk through the field after you had harvested. It was no longer stealing, because what was left is, was communal. And they could pick the food from inside and along the edges, where you were forbidden to harvest. It was literally baked into the Jewish um, kind of theological system because God is a God of generosity and care. And so he puts it into the culture. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go collect food and pick over the fields that are being harvested. And while there, she's noticed by someone. Because obviously, even from Ruth's declaration, she was different. She was clearly some woman of deep, profound character. And others started to notice her. And Naomi noticed that others were noticing her and began to do matchmaker, right? And very much like Sebastian the Crab level, right? Kiss the girl kind of level of matchmaking. Orchestrating the moment, right? Getting the music to make sure everything was perfect. And something incredible happens. It works. And so this is where we find in Ruth chapter 4, Ruth is now married to the man Boaz, whose field that she had found. And not only that, the world is beginning to change for Naomi. And it says, praise be to the Lord. This is what the women of the village are saying. Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, which is this idea that someone, kind of a distant relative, could marry. Um, and so... Naomi, Boaz, it just happened to be, was a distant relative of, of Naomi. And so this beautiful full circle, Boaz is very successful. I mean, he's like, like before the bachelor was the bachelor, like it was like he was the bachelor in, in Bethlehem. He, he was incredibly successful and he was single. And he was this incredibly godly man with this amazing amount of character. And so... It is, I mean, it's kind of like, it's really like a romantic comedy that just happened in real life. I mean, like Jennifer Lopez is marrying him, and you're just crying. You're like, it worked. It really worked. Love's real. And, and so this moment's playing out. And, and so the women are commenting to Naomi about it, and they say, may he become famous, right? Speaking about Boaz, throughout Israel, 
He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age because Naomi now has someone to take care of her too. Which by itself would have been an incredible story. But notice, they said, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Which in, in the Jewish, ancient Jewish world, seven was a number of fullness, completeness. And the idea of having seven sons would have been like the perfect completeness. And seven sons would have been significant because it was financial security. It was like personal security because you had this, literally this force around you. Um, and they said, no, no, look how fortunate you are. Your daughter-in-law whose love for you is so amazing, it's better than having seven sons. And she has given birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. I, one of the things that I, I, we do is the 112 and teach people how to read the Bible and really read it in four-dimensional, not just three-dimensional. Because when people are like, oh, I really struggle to read I, I mean, it is an incredible thing to read. And this is one of those moments when you read it in four dimension, you can't help but be moved emotionally. Because here's this woman who had lost her husband. She left the town, loses her husband, loses her two sons. Her life is over. And now she is back in Bethlehem. And in her arms is a new baby who's going to call her grandma. It is incredible. And the women there say, Naomi has a son. Notice they're not calling her Mara. They're calling her Naomi. She ended up better, not bitter. I think for some of us, if we're going to be real about this season and what we've walked through, then we have to acknowledge there were some things that were taken from us. There was life that was not lived. And life every single day is so incredibly prescient that, that losing two and a half years of it should hurt. Some of us are stuck in what feels like permanent Groundhog Day, trying to figure out life while all of life is happening. You still have to parent. You still have to work. You still have to do all these other things. And you're trying to make sense of it. And it's really easy to get bitter. And what Naomi does through the book of Ruth is get better. And what she does for us, I just want to give you a couple quick things, is show us how to switch those letters. To move from bitter to better. Because it is work to switch those letters. Especially if you're dealing with not days, but decades of pressure. So one of the things that she did was she, she focused on others, not herself. The fact that she felt the obligation to get Ruth married, I think, was actually a really powerful part of the process of healing. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes when we feel bad, we like to have a, a little pity party. And I don't know about your pity party, but most people don't show up at my pity party. Their pity parties are the worst parties to ever be invited to, and they're the worst parties to ever attend. They're not fun. You feel worse at the end. 
And all you can focus on is, oh, it's not fair, and I got to do this, and look what I lost, and I don't like them, and they're ugly, and I'm going to block them on social media. And we, you know, we just kind of sit, and it's like the little violin comes out, and he's like, me, 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 me. You're like, whoa, it's me, everyone. And people talk to you, and you're, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay, but you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's this one thing over and over and over and over. Because pain, bitterness, is self-orienting. It is self-centering. Ironically, people who are bitter do not feel selfish, but people who are bitter are incredibly selfish. Because all they can think about, all they're consumed by, is what self has lost, what self has dealt with, what self doesn't have, what self should have. And the simple focusing on others, I think, was a huge part of Naomi stepping out of bitterness. And the other thing that was really critical that was part of her story was that she began to focus on what you still have, not what you lost. I think this is the one that, for many of us, no matter where you are, even as we look back over the last couple years, is that, yes, there has been a lot of things that have been taken, but there's also been things that have been given. I mean, through this journey, I remember moments when we were shut down as a church, and I'm like, can you still be a pastor if you're really a YouTube person, but you don't even have a big YouTube following, and you're not getting paid for it? I mean, like, I mean, as you start to wonder, like, should I tell people I'm a YouTuber? Because I feel like that's what I do more than anything else is I'm YouTubing, but I'm not even a good YouTuber, right? And, you know, I'm like, maybe I should, like, give away a million dollars or, like, only eat pizza for three weeks straight and see what it does to my body. And I'm like, oh, nope, i already doing that. Maybe I should put that on YouTube, right? I mean, like, it was just weird where you're like, do I even have a church anymore? And it would be easier in that season to see everybody that was leaving and all the people moving and all, the, all that coming into an empty room on Sundays. But one of the cool things was also coming through that same journey is I'm more excited about this church's future than I ever have before. There were things birthed in this season when, when all I focused on was what I lost. I missed it. And I remember there was this clear turning point for me where I started to focus on what I still had and started dreaming fresh. And there are things that we're working on right now that we're not even talking about that I think are literally going to change the world. This church is going to change the world. I am not exaggerating. I am not being histrionic. I am not being dramatic because that is not me. But things were birthed in that season that I am so excited about. Right? Yes, it's worth clapping about. Like God is doing, we're back here in this room. Come on now. Like focus on what you have. Some of you still have people who are around you, who love you, who believe in you. Some of you still have a job and you are paying your bills. It is not what you wanted, but it is what you have. Some of you maybe can't imagine where you could go from here, but you need to imagine what you could have lost that you didn't. And there's so much good still left. And this is what she comes to realize. There's good. And I think part of that journey, to just give you the final piece of advice, is to lean on what jewelers use when they're working on repairing jewelry. 
This is what they use. This is also what people who spend a lot of time soldering and working on electronics use. Now, what's fascinating about these is these glasses, um, while I'm looking straight, actually give me no ability to see what's out there. I can only see right here. But what's currently in my vision right now as I'm looking out at you is my remote. This is all I can see. All I can see is my next, my step here, my step here, my step here. And I think that what Naomi demonstrated is that sometimes when we're in the midst of life, in the midst of hard, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of grief, in the midst of darkness, and we can't imagine a better future. Like you're like, Chris, you say better, not bitter, but all I feel is the bitter. I can't imagine how it's ever going to get better. And it's like, it's okay. Naomi could have never comprehended holding a baby in her arms. She never could have pictured holding a baby, watching her daughter-in-law get married to one of the most financially successful men in her village. She couldn't have comprehended it. She couldn't have envisioned it. She couldn't have gone to a session with a whiteboard and said, dream big, Naomi. Oh, let's just, let's get a BHAG and conquer the world, right? It was not in her capacity. But what Naomi does is she notices that someone has noticed Ruth. So what does she do? She takes a step. And she encourages it and takes another step. And all along, God has been doing something. God's been orchestrating something. God's been stirring a different storyline. And, and in some ways, this is the perfect picture for what life looks like when it comes to faith and vision on that journey to better. You can't see what's down the road, but you can see what's right in front of you. And if you can, in that moment, with that amount of faith, believe God's not done. I'm not dead. My God is not a God of the bitter. He is a God of the better. He can bring better into my relationships. He can bring better into my life. And we take that next step. Can't see where we're headed, but we take that next step. And we keep doing that, and one day the glasses come off, and we start to look around, and we're holding a baby in our arms, and our world is completely different. And that's ultimately why detoxing from bitterness is so essential, is it robs us of our future, and you have no idea of the future God has for you. Here's how the story ends. Speaking of the baby, they named him Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. David would grow to be one of the greatest kings in Israel. And eventually out of his bloodline, Jesus would come. Literally the hope of the world was sitting in her arms. She had no idea. God was dreaming of what, not he was gonna, how he was going to restore the decades of brokenness. No, he was dreaming about what he was going to do downstream, generationally, out of her life. And for some of us who've walked through the pandemic and fixated and focused on where you've come and what's been lost and what's been done and what can't be undone, yeah, you can't get 10th grade back. Yeah, you can't get that relationship back. But that doesn't have to define you. 
That just may describe you right now. Don't make the mistake of saying, my name's not Naomi, it's Mara. Don't let what is happening to you right now define you. Because in Jesus Christ, there is a whole new set of definitions that get handed down. And it's worth taking that step. It's worth leaning in. It's worth believing in faith that God's not done with me. And I'm going to take the next step. And I'm going to take the next step. And I'm going to take the next step. And to walk in that faith. Believing and forgiving and trusting that God's not done. And in the process, what you'll find is that you can actually detox your soul from one of the most destructive, damaging things that can ever get in it, bitterness. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and the forgiveness and the way that you bring life and hope that you bring future in the midst of frustration. Thank you that you're not done. Thank you that you're not finished. Thank you that you still have things in store for every single one of us on site and online today. Thank you that you're a God who writes new chapters even if the last chapter felt like it was the end. Thank you that you're the God of the resurrection. You're the God of the hope. You're the God of life. And I pray that in the midst of that, we would respond with expectation and with hopefulness. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So really excited about how we get to wrap up today. Um, We're going to close out with a song that I think kind of really is a perfect way of solidifying uh, the secret weapon that we all have if we're Christ followers, which is the power of forgiveness. That there was on the cross this beautiful demonstration of of life is not fair. That things do hurt. Theologically, we believe Jesus was the best person to have ever walked planet earth. And the worst possible thing was done to the best possible person ever. That's the cross. And yet out of that very horrible, devastating dark moment, birth the hope that gives us a future, that gives us grace, that breaks the power of shame and guilt. And one of the most powerful things as Christians that we can do is be reminded of the grace that he's offered to us and as a call for us to offer it to others. Some of us need to forgive people in our lives that we've been holding on a grudge to for way too long. You think you're punishing them. They haven't thought about you. They haven't thought about what they've done to you. They don't even have it on their radar to think about you. But it is on your radar. You think about it often. You feel it often. And some of you, the next step today is to forgive. Forgive. Because God has forgiven you. And for some of you who can't even fathom forgiven, maybe the first step for you today is to lean into maybe that Jesus is a little bit more than some religious teacher or just one of those people from one of those faiths that maybe he in fact was God who paved the way for you and him to be restored and in the process of restoring you, peace and joy flows to you and grace comes into you giving you the strength and the ability to extend it to others. It's one of the most powerful things that we can do. 
is to take a step towards him and find that he already took all 999 of them towards us. And for some of us, it'd just be to allow the reality that there's a God of the resurrection, that Friday wasn't all there was, to stir us to believe that we can move from bitter to better. We can geographically, relationally, physically move from bitter to better. And then as we sing this song, Oh, Come to the Altar, pray that you'd experience that. And then um, there'll be a musical kind of interlude in the moment, and then I'm going to come back up, and as a church, we're going to wrap up our day by celebrating what God is doing here. So I invite you to stand, and we'll sing.